You pray pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being our God. Thank you for calling us to be your people. We thank you for the many blessings and the many benefits that come with being called your people. Chiefly of which is the salvation that you offer us freely through the blood of your Son. We pray for that. Apply it to our lives, to our souls, to our eyes during this time. Let us see only you. Let us see the work that he has done for us. Let us be filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that we are so as believers, as Christians, Lord, you have promised us that. But we also recognize that there is times when we can feel your presence all the more. We pray that this is one of those times. We pray that as we're gathered together as a people right now, that your presence is known amongst us. That the reading of your word will be blessed. That the prayer that is prayed now and the prayers of these saints during the sermon will be blessed. That the sermon itself will be blessed. That the songs that we sing to you will be blessed. And the blessing that you pronounce on your people as we leave here is indeed a blessing to go out into the week be light, be lights that are shining into a dark world. For we know that we do not bear any light of our own, but we merely reflect the light that is given to us by our Savior. We pray that that light is made manifest right now in this place, in our hearts and souls. May you bless this time together, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So tonight, we're going to continue our presence in 1 John, Dirk giving the introduction sermon two weeks ago, and then Prashant tackling verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1 last week. And as already as has already has been outlined for you, John, just to remind you, wrote this small epistle to a specific set of readers that were probably in a specific city, and he wrote it to remind them of the truths that had already been handed down to them. John wants them to not be swayed by false teachers that are trying to come in. And so he needs to lay out again a simple set of beliefs that constitute the Christian faith and then how embracing those beliefs and thereby rejecting the false beliefs that are trying to trickle their ways in leads to conduct that provides this evidence that the hearers are truly regenerate, born-again believers. That's John's purpose. And in doing this, John's epistle here is very repetitive, and it's very circular in that way. It's not a bad thing, but it is. So John, what he's going to do, he's going to introduce an idea. He's going to apply an idea. He's going to reintroduce that same idea in a different way, maybe using a different metaphor or a different analogy. He's going to apply it that way. Then he's going to circle back to that first idea, and then he's going to apply it again. John doesn't write like Paul, right? Paul, in his letters, Paul starts with a premise, and then he builds an argument, logical argument, step by step by step by step. That's not the way John writes. John is going to be here, then he's back over there, then he's over there, then he's back in that second place, and then he's back around to the first place again. And then he introduces a new idea, then he comes back to the third place. John's going to be like that in this very short epistle. But all the time that he's doing this, he's making pastoral applications all along the way. 
So you can tell, if you just read two, two letters back to back, you can see that John and Paul and even Peter write in completely different ways, right? Even though we know that the Holy Spirit provided all these men the words to say, you can still see their personal writing styles coming through their writings. But in throughout all of God's preserving providence, all of these men and their unique communication styles and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit have something important to say to the church. And so then tonight, in the uniqueness of John's style, we're going to introduce some ideas that John is still going to come back to later in the letter. And all the time that he does this, he's going to ever be reminding his readers of the truths of the gospel and then how to apply those truths to their own Christian living. So tonight, our primary focus is going to be verses 5 through 10, chapter 1. But to start off this paragraph, John refers to a hymn, so H-I-M. So it's going to benefit us to remind ourselves exactly who this hymn is. So you know it, but we're going to read about it in the way that John so majestically and truthfully identifies him. So we're going to start back up in verse 1 and read the whole chapter of chapter 1 of 1 John. So let's read that together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. So John here, John has a message to deliver. And he says this message, this message comes directly from Jesus Christ and to, is to be heard directly by God's people. And this is the message that he says here, God is light. God contains no measure of darkness whatsoever. People that practice darkness and call themselves Christians are liars. Christians walk in the light of God's countenance. They are completely guided by him. And this is the defining characteristic of our fellowship. This is the defining characteristic of fellowship of Christians is that we all share the same light. But the only reason that we can share that light is that Jesus' blood has first been applied to us. And those that reject that blood and refuse to confess their sins are also liars, like that other group is liars. They deceive their own selves. But those who do confess, those people are forgiven, not even with a hint of unrighteousness left over, completely forgiven. But then he ends up, "Don't don't be deceived And claim that you are not in need of this because doing so not only makes you a liar, 
In doing this, you accuse Jesus himself of being a liar. These are tough words from John, but these are necessary words. These were necessary words for the false teaching that were coming into the church in 90 AD, and these are necessary words in the year of our Lord, 2024. Remember, John here is warning the believers about heresies that are trying to come in through the church through these false teachers. And these men, they're coming in, they're claiming authority where they had none. John says that his authority comes because he had been taught and sent directly by Christ himself. Like he said in the introduction to the letter, these are the things that he himself had seen and he himself had heard. These were direct apostolic theology and direct apostolic application. This was the same thing for Peter. This was the same thing for Paul, directly commissioned by Christ himself. But then the question goes, what about the other early church planners then? What about Silas or Barnabas or John Mark or those guys? Well, those weren't chosen apostles, not that we're told in Scripture anyway. They hadn't been directly commissioned by Christ himself. But were they still legitimate teachers of the church too? Yes, they were. Why? Well, it's because their message is true. Even though they were not directly commissioned by Jesus Christ himself face to face, like the others were, their message is true, and that's what confirms them as, te- as teachers in the church. And this translates over to the wisdom of the Bereans, right? You, the Bereans didn't just take someone's word for it. They searched out the scriptures to confirm the words that are being preached. That's the same way with us. We're not to take someone's word that they are a messenger from God. You are to weigh the words that they preach against the standard of scripture, of the things that God has already revealed. So then John presents this letter mainly as a reminder, as a reminder to hold fast to the truth that had already been revealed to these people. He's reminding them the truths that they already know and to not let the new things creep in that are not true. So novelty here, as John describes it, and novelty most of the time is usually a bad thing when it comes to Christian doctrine. So don't don't misunderstand me, because don't confuse novelty with regaining what has been once lost, like the Reformation, right? The Reformation to some was seen as a novelty, but it wasn't. It was regaining what had been lost over the previous hundreds of years. So in that way, it's not a novelty. But most of the time, novelty is a bad thing. That's how you get Islam. It's a new revelation from an angel, right? Or the same thing for Mormonism. It's a new revelation from an angel. Or Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a new revelation, or other things that we might still consider Christian, like the techniques of, of Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening, something that comes in. This is, these are new methods that Finney introduces, right? this emotional, emotional music-driven confessions and altar calls and things like that. These are novelties that were not around in the history of the church before then that have done a lot of damage. Or dispensationalism, this was a novelty. No one had heard of such before the 1800s. So obviously some of those things that I mentioned are worse than others. You know, Islam and Mormonism are are worse than dispensationalism, right? We all agree with that. Some of those are demonic. But all of them are departures of the practices and the doctrines of the early church. And so then John reminds, or John sets the example here that the primary defensive goals of the church, particularly the pastors of the church, is to preserve the truths that have been pronounced since the beginning. Since the beginning of the church, since the beginning of the New Testament church, we are to preserve the truths, not introduce new revelations in the, mess, in the business of preserving the truths here. 
That's what John does. And John does this, first of all here, after claiming his authority in those first four verses, is John is going to hearken back to one of the most ancient and well-developed analogies all throughout Scripture. And that is the concept of light. The concept of light as a metaphor for goodness and truth and beauty. So at the risk of repeating Dirk's sermon from a few months ago, or some points from Dirk's sermon a few months ago, remember when he preached, when we were preaching through I Am's, Dirk had I Am the light of the world. So there might be some crossover here, but that'll be just fine. We're going to look at the concept of light in the scriptures in both the Old and the New Testament. Well, there's a reason for that is because God really likes light. God really likes it so much, in fact, that he created it first when he said, let there be light. And the next thing he does is that he separates the light from the darkness. And so this, this here, this light-darkness comparison in Genesis 1 hasn't reached into the good versus evil territory that light versus darkness reaches throughout the rest of Scripture, but it's there. So in the beginning, it's just physical And then it moves into the spiritual. The Bible quickly gets to the light-darkness dichotomy as a spiritual thing very quickly in Scripture. And so just so you know, there are, I didn't count these, so I'm just, I'm taking the um, commentator's word at his word right here. There are over 200 references to light in Scriptures, in the Scriptures. So you can then understand that God likes to use it as an example to establish and communicate his truths to us. And I'm going to do something that I'm tempted to apologize for and to go through and reading a ton of verses about light, but I don't think I need to apologize for the public reading of Scripture in a worship service, so I'm not going to. We're about to read a lot of verses about light. Adam called me out about this in Sunday school today. He called it Seth's popcorn method to where he throws a bunch of Scripture at us. I took that as a compliment. So you just just no read no need to no need to uh, reference to um, to turn to each of these passages in the scripture because I'm doing this rapid fire machine gun style here, and um, just listen intently and you're going to see a lot of reinforcement of the ideas that are coming through here. And so there's going to be a lot of verses here, but stick with me; it's going to be beneficial to you. And so I've kind of separated these into five kind of general categories. One, as light as good and darkness as evil. So verses that kind of characterize light as good as darkness as evil. The second category is God as light. The third category is Christ as light. The fourth category is being Christians as light bearers or reflectors of that light. And then the fifth one is these crossover verses that really touch into two or more of those other four. So here we go. Ready, set, go. First one, light as good and darkness as evil. Ecclesiastes 2.13. I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. 2 Corinthians 6.1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Paul, when preaching to King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, I'm here to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then later on, that that the Christ must suffer and that being, being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
And then without reading the verse, there's this darkness as this specifically as some sort of terrifying reality here. And you see this in the progression of the plagues on Egypt. Remember, each plague is worse than the plague before it. And the one that's immediately before the worst of all, the killing of the firstborn, is darkness. Right? Darkness is terrifying. It's evil. It's bad. God brings that upon the people of Egypt. So darkness is a terrifying reality there. And then in in Jude, verse 6, says, and the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has them kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So you see those dichotomy between light is good and darkness is evil in the scripture that supports that. But there's also a very, very curious verse there in 2 Corinthians 11 that warns Christians that they must be careful. They must be careful because Satan is going to try to trick you. He's going to try to trick you into despair. He's going to try to trick you into temptation. And he does this, as Paul says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So light is good, darkness is evil, but Satan is going to come in. And he even does this in the early church with these false teachers. He's going to disguise himself as an angel of light, but he's really the prince of darkness. So Christians must be aware. They must be stand on guard. So that was light is good, darkness is evil. Then moving on to the second category, God is light. You see a lot of this in the Psalms. A lot of this in the Psalms. So Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Later on, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 18, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Daniel 2, 22, talking about God. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. Micah 7, 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Then over in the New Testament, James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then lastly, that great inspiring reality that we're looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. God likes light. God as light is described in the Scriptures. And then Christ is light also. In John 1, in John's wonderful prelude to his gospel, right, that introduction, that logos that he describes there, it reads very similar to the intro to 1 John. In verses 4 and 5 in the first chapter of John's gospel, talking about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then to reiterate Jesus' I am statement again in John 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And then again in John 9, Jesus speaking again, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So that's Christ's light. And then the fourth category, Christians as light bearers or reflectors of the light. Isaiah, in speaking about the future glory of Israel towards the end of his prophecy, he speaks about the future glory of Israel or the church in Isaiah 60. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise on you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Then in 1 Peter 2, 9, you... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Matthew 5, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand... And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Ephesians 5, Paul speaking, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time, at, at one time you were in darkness. But now you are in light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And then Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 5, For you all are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So that was Christians as light bearers, or Christians as reflectors of the light. And then lastly, there's this crossover verses that kind of contain two or more of those that we just read. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Matthew 4, 16, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. John 3, 19 through 21, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And lastly, John 12 35 and 36, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light.
thank you for sticking with me through that. Hope it was beneficial for you. It was beneficial for me in doing the research and writing all those down. I know that's a lot of scripture, but keep in mind that is only roughly 10% of everything the Bible has to say about light. The Bible talks about light and darkness quite a bit, especially about light. And so I conclude here by looking back at 1 John, which is one of those crossover passages. And in this crossover passage, John actually contains all four of the previous categories that we had. John says that darkness is the domain of liars. It's the domain of falsity. It's the domain of anti-truth. But God then, God is light. God is the opposite of darkness. And the Father's Son, Jesus Christ, is the means by which we have fellowship with that light because he too is light. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, that fellowship can only happen in the light. It can't happen in the darkness. And that's a peculiar property of darkness, right? It can only be defined in the negative, what it is not. Darkness is the absence of the light. So where Christ is not, that is where the darkness dwells. That is where the evil dwells. But him having been made sin for us once and for all, finishing the job, conquering the domain of darkness, Christ dwells in marvelous light. And dwelling in that marvelous light, Christ gives that light to all of those that have been adopted by God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings the light of the glory of God into these temples. And so then we become the bearers of that light, or reflecting that light back to the world. And so then, like the moon, the moon is peculiar in its properties, right? We look at the moon at night on the full moon, we say the moon gives it light. Well, that's, that's not true. The moon produces no light of its own. All the moon does is reflect the light of the sun, right? So we're the same way. We generate no light of our own. We walk in the light of the sun, the S-O-N, and thereby we reflect his light. Right? And then to extend this illustration even further, when is the moon the brightest? When it's full. Right? So when is the moon full? The moon is full when it is not in the shadow of the earth. If the moon is in the shadow of the earth, that's when there's a new moon can't see it at all. But when it's completely not in the shadow of the earth, that's when the moon is full. And when the moon is full, that is when it's reflecting the light in the most intense way. When it's exposed to the sun without any sort of restrictions. So then if you let the world come in between you and Christ, you are not going to fully reflect the light that you're meant to reflect. You're not going to be reflected as the one who's supposed to be walking completely in the light. So the way that you best reflect Christ's light into the world is to be apart from the world, but still reflecting the light back into the world. To keep your eyes on Jesus, to keep focusing on him, and then then reflect his glory back to the darkness that is the earth. We're made to be those that are reflecting the light, the light reflectors or the light bearers. And I realize how new agey that sounds. We're to be the bearers of light, right? But it's not new agey. That is pure scripture, right? To bear Christ's light back to the world. 
And every single human being on the planet has the capacity for the light bearing, every one of us. In humanity's pure form, in the beginning, being made in the image of God, this endowed Adam and Eve with positive righteousness and it endowed them with the ability to have dominion over the earth as God's viceroys and vice regents. For those of you who are in adult Sunday school, that should sound familiar. In other words, before the fall, they reflected God's image perfectly. They walked in the light perfectly. And they reflected his image perfectly. They bore the light exactly in the way that God intended. But then the fall happens. And then sin enters. And then the light gets distorted. It gets filthy. And just like a mirror cannot reflect the light like it's supposed to, if the mirror is filthy, is filthy, then there's not going to be a reflection. Or if the mirror is deformed or broken, there's going to be a refraction or some sort of distorted reflection. In the same way, humans cannot reflect God's light if there's sin. God must come in and straighten out those deformities. God must come in and wipe away the filth that's on that mirror. And thankfully, as John says here, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So then we can reflect that light. And that's the good news of the gospel, that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. What can wash away my sins? You can respond. Come on. There we go. I thought I was going to have to bring it out of you guys more. Good. Good. So to repeat John again there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I could go into that more, but I'm going to leave that there for now as to how exactly we're cleansed. Because in two weeks, if you look down in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. We're going to, Dirk is going to uh, go with that verse in a couple of weeks, so I'm going to leave that to him and not expound upon it here. But we do know that Christ cleanses us of our sins. That's clear from the rest of Scripture that's clear in John right now. So, that's going to be developed further in two weeks. So come back in two weeks to hear that powerful and clear gospel message, I'm sure. But the one thing, another thing that we do need to address here is these two, there's two groups that, that John, or two types of people that John addresses here in our section tonight that John explicitly calls liars. Tough word, but a true word, liars. And so I'm going to start with the second type. Read verse 10, it says, if we... If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay? These are the types of people that say they have no need for a Savior, and these are prominent in our society. These are very prominent in our society. They won't outright say that, but they, they say they are good enough. They don't need a Savior. They're good people. They do good things. They don't sin enough to need a Savior. They might sin, but they don't need to sin enough to need a Savior. John has harsh words for these people once more. They are liars. It's very straightforward, liars. They have this stubborn refusal to accept their need for God and His free offer of forgiveness. 
And it's really baffling. It's baffling that someone would refuse such a free offer of forgiveness from a God that is so holy that he cannot even look upon sin itself. Jesus' blood is right there. It's ready to be applied. But these people are so blinded by their pride and they like to listen to those sweet words of Satan disguised as an angel of light when he tells them that they haven't committed anything that needs repenting of. So ask, is that someone here tonight? If so, that's a dangerous place to be. John says, you make God a liar. But there's good news, though. The good news is the same good news that applies to the believers here. The good news is that if you confess your sins, you are made righteous. Like John even says right here, completely cleansed from all unrighteousness. So then the imperative is there. Don't delay, repent, and believe. You are in need of a Savior. You do sin. You have sinned. Jesus' blood is there to be applied. Repent and believe. So that was the first type. The second type, I'm sorry, that actually was the second type. Let's go back to the first type that John addressed. The first type of deceived person. These are the people that say they have no sin now. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, honestly, if I'm being honest, John could just be talking about the same folks that we just talked about in verse 10, albeit with just slightly different phrasing, but I don't really think he is. Because remember, he's trying to refute these Gnostic heretics that are coming in. And I think he's actually talking to people here that believe they have reached a state of sinless perfection in the Christian life. And some of those, once again, Gnostic heretics are coming in and they're claiming this, right? They know that's what Gnosticism means, right? It's just knowledge. It's a special knowledge that they have. And part of some of their special knowledge was that they have attained perfection already. They themselves, although they used to sin, they will admit that they used to sin And they needed Christ's blood applied to them. But after Christ's blood has been applied, they have begun this process of progressive sanctification, which is all we would agree. We would agree with all that up to that point. But these people are going to go on further and they're going to say, we have become so sanctified that we no longer sin at all. Okay. So I know this is going to sound strange to you, but there are actual present day denominations out there that despite having solid views on a lot of things, they take some of the ideas of John Wesley a bit too far and believe, actually believe, that believers can reach a state, that a believer can reach a state where he lives above the power of sin even before death to where he is perfect and no longer sins. So I'm going to confess to you guys, and hopefully you will agree with me, that I know Four things here, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know that I am in Christ. I know that the Holy Spirit dwells in me. And I know that I still sin. And I know that despite my best efforts, I will still sin until the Lord calls me home. So Christian perfectionism here, this is a dangerous doctrine for two reasons. For the first reason, it's deluding the people that think that they have reached the state of perfection, right? If a man tells you this and he's a married man, you could talk to his wife and I promise you, she is going to say that he's wrong 
If she's not, she's also lying. Okay. So it can delude those people into thinking they have reached the state of perfection. And so if they've reached the state of perfection, then they're in no need of the Holy Spirit sanctifying power anymore. They're no need of Christ's blood anymore. In other words, it drives them away from Christ. All right, if you believe you've reached a state of perfection, you no longer need Christ. You no longer need His righteousness. You have your own righteousness. So that's the first, first group of people that is dangerous because it's dangerous for another group of people, the people that believe this, but believe they themselves have not reached this state and they, because they know that they still sin, but these people will be driven to despair because they think that they're, why hasn't the Holy Spirit blessed me in this way? Why haven't I gotten, they'll call it this, the second blessing of the Spirit to where I've reached the state of perfection where I don't sin anymore? Why does that brother have it and I don't have it? All right. So John squashes this idea here. John says, no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So that's the second group that John just straight up calls liars here. We say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Ergo, liar. So we all identify with Apostle Paul who goes on to lament, wretched man that I am. And so instead we confess our sins, continually repenting. We trust in Christ's righteousness. We do not trust in our own sinless perfection. So we'll never be perfect or perfected on this side of glory. That much is clear from Scripture. It's clear from the testimony of saints for thousands of years. But then again, this is no excuse to go on sinning. Paul agrees there too. He says, of course not. Sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross. So then we are to grieve over our sins. We are to stay in a state of continual repentance, confessing our sins to God and to one another. And then we go on to receive our forgiveness with joy. And this all binds us together as brothers and sisters. This is also a function of us sharing that light together. Walking in the light means that we're walking with Jesus. It means that we're walking with Jesus. And if we're walking with Jesus, we're going to be walking with one another. We're going to have fellowship with each other, all within the light of Christ Jesus. And light here has... If you think about light, light has so many wonderful benefits. It does. It scatters the night, which in turn drives away those with evil intent. Evil tends to happen at night, more so than the daytime. Light warms, melting away the cold. Light has sanitizing properties, killing many types of germs. Makes you feel good, too, just to be in the sunshine, right? Light allows the world to flourish. Growing and becoming beautiful. Those are just to name a few things. Just a few things of the benefits of light. And our Savior does the same thing. He scatters the night, driving in the way of the evil. Our Savior melts cold, hard hearts. Our Savior sanctifies hearts. Removing those germs of sin that remain. And our Savior allows His people to flourish, to grow to become more beautiful just as he is, to become like him. So our fellowship then, our fellowship is made complete in the light of Christ Jesus. And even though, even though we are not without sin, we are still called to be holy, we're called to be sanctified, set apart, in other words, that's used to describe these folks in the New Testament and describe you all saints. 
We're called to be saints. Paul emphasizes this in many of his letters. Just one verse from 2 Timothy 2. It says, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And that cleansing that he says there, cleanse himself from what is dishonorable, becoming an honorable use, set apart as holy, that cleansing is available in Christ Jesus, just as John said. Just as John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the blood of Jesus Christ, so then are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's the question to ask yourself. Then I'll close with one more piece of Scripture. In 2 Peter 1, probably just turn back one page in your Bible. In 2 Peter 1, another general epistle from an apostle. In verses 16 through 19, you'll notice Jesus, uh, Peter's words here are very, very similar to the words at the beginning of 1 John. In 16 through 19, this is what it says. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That sounds very similar to how John opens his letter. In verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Right? Remember who else was with him? John was also with him. And this is the same way that John begins his letter. And then verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Here comes the light as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So, there's the light again. So then, go forth, saints. This is the charge. Go forth out from here. Go forth shining as lamps that are shining in a dark place. Shining as lamps that are cleansed from all unrighteousness, having the blood applied to your hearts and walking in the light of Christ Jesus, being lights the rest of the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so very good to us, Lord. We recognize that we have no light of our own. We merely reflect the light of our Savior, Christ Jesus, that we have been cleansed by the power of his blood that we are here, we have our very being because he has created us and that we are able to stand before you because he has redeemed us, he has applied his blood to us, he has sanctified us. Lord, let us not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can reach a state of perfection apart from you. For We have no good works. We look to Christ's righteousness and recognize that he is just and the justifier, that he is able to cleanse and that he does so freely, and that we are made pure because of him. We thank you for these glorious truths, Lord, and in his name we pray. Amen.